Well, if we could, with the Lord's help and the Lord's guidance this evening, uh, turn to the letter of James. Letter of James, as we begin our study of this letter. James chapter 1, and I just want us to read uh, the first verse. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, <coughs> greetings. <clears throat> As those who live in the 21st century, uh, we live in a day of self-sufficiency. Uh, where we can do everything ourselves, from uh, self-banking, you can put in your cheques and your cash into the bank, or you can also attend a self-checkout. And I suppose I was thinking about this, that the acronym DIY, do it yourself, it's <coughs> broadened to mean far more than just doing a little maintenance around the house. Uh, because nowadays, uh, there have never been so many how-to books. Books which teach us how to do everything. Everything from, from gardening to fixing our car to uh, growing vegetables or cooking or cleaning or sewing. Whatever it is. It's all there so that we know how to do it without the help of anyone else. And you know, that's how I'd like us to think of the letter of James. I want us to think of it as the how-to book <coughs> of Christian living. Because if there were no Christians around us, and if there was no church to guide us or encourage us and direct us on how we ought to live and act as a follower of Jesus Christ, we would struggle. And we would struggle to apply the gospel to our lives and live out our faith in a manner which is distinct from the world around us. Yes, we could say that we've denied self and we've taken up our cross and we've began to follow Jesus and uh, that we've come to Jesus for our, our forgiveness. We have forgiveness of sins. We have cleansing through the blood. We believe the gospel and uh, we believe the good, good news story of God's salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's good. It's wonderful. And it's amazing to have come face to face with our sin and our self and to bring it to Jesus Christ in the gospel. But the question which James wants to address is, what does the gospel look like in our everyday, day-to-day -day lives? What should a person who has been transformed by the grace and power of God look like living in a fallen world? And I believe that that's why James wrote his book on how to Christian living. Because as James says here in this introductory verse, he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And the phrase, the 12 tribes, is just a euphemism for the people of God. But what had happened to the people of God was that they were part of this dispersion, or uh, the diaspora, uh, which literally means the scattering. They had all been scattered. And the dispersion was a term used to define or identify Jews who had converted to Christianity, they'd converted out of Judaism into Christianity and they were now living outside of outside in the land of Palestine. And the reason these Jewish Christians had been scattered or 
dispersed outside the land of Palestine was because they would have been persecuted by Jews who hadn't converted to Christianity. They were being persecuted and they were being driven out by their fellow countrymen and women whom they had grown up with and whom they knew. They were being driven out because they had turned to Jesus for their salvation. And because this persecution and and this dispersion, because it had happened relatively quickly after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, there were no churches in place for them. There were no real structures set up to disciple these young Christians because their faith was new, their their conversion was recent and their love for the Lord was, was strong. But they were living in a Gentile world. They were living in a hostile environment and one which didn't know the gospel. It didn't know it yet. And it's for this reason that James, he was compelled to write this letter on the subject of practical Christianity. So that in the meantime, while all these churches are being established and rooted in all these dispersed areas outside the land of Palestine, uh, these Christians can be taught how to live out their faith in a fallen world. And so as we begin our study of the letter of James, I want us to think of this letter as the handbook to Christian living. Because James's greatest concern is not information but application. He wants us to be able to apply the gospel to our lives and live out our Christianity in a practical way. But before we come to look at all the practical lessons in the weeks to come, all these lessons which James wants to present to us in his letter, I'd like us to begin our study this evening by just asking three introductory questions. Who, why, and what? Who, who was James? Why, why did James write his letter? And what? What does James want to teach us? Who was James? Why did James write his letter? And what does James want to teach us? So we look first of all at who. Who was James? Who was James? It says in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now James begins his letter in the same manner as the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, because he begins by introducing himself to the recipients of his letter. And that was the way in which letters were always written in the ancient world, which, as you know, it's the opposite of the way we write letters or the way we would write we would write an email. Because when we write a letter on an email, we begin with, Dear Joe Bloggs, blah, 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 from Myrtle. But in the ancient world, the letter was always initiated by saying who it's from. That's the way Paul began his letters. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the churches. That's the way Peter begins his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And the same is true for James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. But the issue arises when we don't know which James wrote this letter. Because there are so many people called James in the New Testament. And the author of this letter has, he has been an area of debate for centuries. 
because James never specified who he was or what role he had within the church. And even though we might be tempted to think, well, that it doesn't really matter which James wrote this letter, we can just skip that wee bit. But I think that when we understand the author of the letter, or we understand the author of a book, it helps us to understand the content of their work far better. When we understand the person who penned it, we understand what he's saying far better. And so, who? Who was James? Who was James? Well, it's interesting. In Acts chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, it's the time when Jesus has just ascended to heaven, to the right hand of the Father. And all the apostles, they've all gathered together in the upper room. And we're told everyone who was present there. We're told that Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And we're also told that all these, with one accord, they devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in that upper room meeting, the name James it's mentioned three times. There was James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. And there was James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot. And first of all, it's unlikely that James, the father of Judas, wrote this letter. Because he's only mentioned in order to differentiate the Judases between Judas, the son of James, or and Judas Iscariot, Jesus' betrayer. So the other not-so-well-known James was James, the son of Alphaeus. And he's only ever mentioned in the list of the apostles in the Gospels. You know, when the disciples are called, they give the list of who, he, who Jesus called. And one was James, the son of Alphaeus. And so, well, we don't know enough about him. And he's not well-known enough to have been given this authoritative letter to persecuted Christians. But John Calvin, he believed that it was James, the son of Alphaeus, who wrote this letter. We're not sure why Calvin believed this. Probably because James, the son of Alphaeus, was an apostle and Calvin believed that, well, he has apostolic authority. And we don't often like to disagree with Calvin. But it seems that his suggestion was wrong. But what about the other James? The more well-known James. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. He's the most prominent James in the Gospels. And as you know, he was a fisherman called by Jesus to be a fisher of men. And you'll remember the occasion when James and John, they were, they were mending their nets. And Jesus, he passed by and he said, follow me. And they began to follow Jesus. And James, along with Peter and John... They were all part of this inner circle. You remember the inner circle that was always with, with Jesus. The inner circle of his friends. They were privileged to witness the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. They were privileged to see the transfiguration of, of Jesus. And they were also privileged to be with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But the reason why we can't conclude that it was this James who wrote this practical letter is because he was the first of the disciples to be put to death. 
In Acts chapter 12, we're told that James was put to death by Herod Agrippa, which was in the year AD 44, which was also before this letter was written. And so, well, that leaves us pretty much clueless as to who this James was. Because we concluded that it wasn't James, the father of Judas, it wasn't James, the son of Alphaeus, and it wasn't James, the brother of John. So who was it? Who was James? Well, what's interesting is that during that upper room meeting with the apostles in Acts chapter 1, there was one other James which wasn't mentioned by name. And he's included in the statement, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. And he was included because Jesus had a brother called James. Well, technically he was his half-brother, because Jesus didn't have a biological father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But we know from the Gospel accounts that Jesus had four brothers. There was James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. But the brothers of Jesus, they weren't always supportive of Jesus' ministry. In fact, we're told in John's Gospel that the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him. They refused to believe in him and they refused to follow him. Which means that in his youth, James, the brother of Jesus, he certainly wouldn't have described himself as he does right here in this letter. He would have never have said that he was the servant of God and of his brother the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, although we can only speculate, it must have been difficult growing up with Jesus in your home. When you think about it, to be faced with constant perfection and as a result, you're always seeing your own failures. You're living with a brother who never sinned. He didn't answer back. He didn't disobey his mother. He always honoured his father And he did as he was told. And it must have been hard for these four other brothers. And inevitably it brought jealousy and resentment and ultimately rejection of Jesus. But what's remarkable is that Jesus didn't reject them. And he certainly didn't reject James. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, I know I'm throwing all these passages of scripture at you. But in 1 Corinthians 15... Paul gives this list of when Jesus was resurrected, all the people he visited or he went to see. And that when he rose from the dead, he appeared to all these people. And included in that list in 1 Corinthians 15 was his brother, James. And you know, such a personal experience with the resurrected Christ, his brother, meeting with James, it must have convinced James that His brother really was the saviour of sinners. And you know, it's remarkable to think that James was so close to Jesus for so many years, and yet he rejected him. He knew about him, yet he didn't know him. And I'm sure that many of us can say the same. That we were brought up with Jesus in our home, brought up with Jesus amongst our family, where we often heard the name mentioned in family worship, or we were, when we were in school, we heard the name Jesus, or even when we were at work, we heard people speaking about Jesus. Jesus was all around us, and he was so close to us. He was in our home and in our families, and yet, in so many ways, we were so far away from him. 
And there were many years where we knew about Jesus. But we didn't know him. We didn't know him like we know him now. There were many years that we refused to follow Jesus and to serve Jesus. But our desire now is to follow Jesus and to serve Jesus. Well, what, but what changed? Well, what made the difference in our lives? Was it not what made the difference in James's life? When Jesus came to us personally and he revealed himself to us personally, he made himself known personally and he made himself known to us as the saviour and friend of sinners. And like James, we were once slaves to sin. But now we confess that we are a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the other reason the letter of James would carry with it some authority and spiritual weight is because James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. During the first general assembly, the general assembly of the church, which is recorded for us in Acts 15, you could say that James was appointed the moderator, in which he moderated the church in all her discussions at the Jerusalem Council. Discussions which were heated because of this increasing animosity between Jews and Christians. And it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul, he refers to James as the pillar, the pillar in the Christian church. But what made James stand out as a pillar in the church, and what makes any Christian stand out as a pillar in the church, is not their leadership skills, but their humble and gracious character. And that was true of James. Because history tells us that as a leader of the Christian church, he was hated by Jews. And he was hated so much so that the Pharisees, they threw him off the top of the temple and then they beat him to death. But the story goes that as James was being beaten to death, he followed the example of his brother by praying for his murderers. And it's said that he prayed the same prayer that Christ prayed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you know, it's no wonder that James wrote such a practical letter to persecuted Christians. Because he knew what it was like. He knew what it was to be persecuted for righteousness sake. But it seems that James's greatest desire was for the world to know about his brother and his Lord not only by our mouths, but also by our actions. Which brings us to our second introductory question. Why? We've asked who, but why? Why did James write his letter? Why did James write his letter? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. We mentioned earlier that the phrase, the twelve tribes, it's a euphemism for the people of God. Uh, they were converted Jews who would certainly have been familiar with the concept of the twelve tribes. The twelve tribes of Israel, which corresponded to the sons of Jacob. But as we said, these converted Jews were part of the dispersion, part of the scattering. Who were living outside the land of Palestine because of persecution. And... Because this persecution and uh, dispersion had happened 
soon after the resurrection, as we said, there was no churches. There was no real structure for them in place to disciple these young Christians. Their faith was new. Their conversion had just taken place, but they were full of the Lord. But they were living in a Gentile country and they were facing a hostile environment. And because they were young Christians without an established church and without structures and consecutive teaching, well, as you can imagine and as you can expect, there were problems. Problems had arisen within the fellowship of God's people. And it was not only causing division, but it was also stunting spiritual growth. Because the Christians in the church, they weren't living up to what they professed to believe. There were some who were facing temptations from the world and struggles with worldliness. There were others who were straying from the fellowship of God's people, thinking that they didn't need to attend church as often because they knew it all already. There were some who couldn't control their tongue. There were others who were only interested in a a certain class and a certain type of people, where they were showing favoritism towards the rich and excluding the poor. And there was also some who were full of jealousy. They were competing for positions within the church. But the root cause of all their problems, whether it was worldliness, temptation, gossip, pride or jealousy, the root cause was immaturity. The root cause was immaturity. They were immature in their faith and they needed to grow up. Yes, they would have been relatively young in their faith, but they weren't growing. They weren't learning. They weren't developing. They weren't maturing. Instead, they were only stunting their growth by all their distractions. And as a result, they were going, uh, they were going to have no impact upon the world around them that was already hostile to the gospel. And so the message of James to the churches was simple and straightforward. Grow up. Grow up. You know, one commentator, he put it so bluntly when he said, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in churches today. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. He's blunt. But that's what James wants us to avoid. He wants us to avoid the playpen and develop as Christians and grow and go on to maturity. So that we in turn will be able to to teach other people, to bring other people in. And the emphasis which James stresses, he says that we will become perfect. That we will become perfect. And James uses that word perfect. He uses it again and again throughout his letter. You'll notice it when you you read through the letter, the word perfect. But James, he's not talking in the sense of being sinless, perfect without sin. He's talking in the sense of maturing and growing and being balanced in our views of Christianity. And he actually expresses this longing right at the beginning. Read verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing James wants us to progress in our Christian lives so that we will become perfect men and women not sinless but mature Christians 
who will make an impact upon a fallen world. And you know, this problem of immaturity, it wasn't confined to the churches which James wrote to. It was everywhere. Paul experienced the same troubles with when he wrote to the Corinthians and also to the Philippians. But it was the writer to the Hebrews who wrote to encourage Jewish Christians who had converted to Christianity and they were also being persecuted for their faith. And the writer to the Hebrews, he wrote that because they were being persecuted, he wrote to them because many of them were turning away. They were turning away from Christianity and backsliding into Judaism. They were going back into Judaism. But the reason they were backsliding says the writer to the Hebrews, and not going on to maturity, was because they were neglecting the meeting together of God's people. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. This is where every Christian should be on a Wednesday night. Not because I'm preaching, but because this is where the Lord's people are to be found. And the Lord's people ought to be coming together like this, Around the word of God. Because it's that word which they cherish so dearly in their heart. And I know that there are times that we can't make it. Or there are genuine reasons as to why we can't be here. Children and all these other things. But you know, from the moment I was converted. I cannot understand any Christian who has no desire. And who makes no effort to be here on a Wednesday night. Because as James will tell us in our study, neglecting the meeting of the people of God will stunt our growth and it will lead to an instability in our Christian life. He says a double-minded man is unstable in all their ways. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is also highlighting. That because they neglected the meeting together of God's people, they're stuck on the milk. Stuck drinking milk, he says. He says, by now you ought to be teachers. You ought to be passing it on to people. You ought to be showing others the the way to go. But you need someone to come and teach you again the first principles of the Bible. You need milk, not solid food. And using the same word James uses, the writer to the Hebrews, he encouraged all Christians to go on to perfection. To go on to maturity. To grow in your faith. To build upon the salvation that they've already received and enjoy through Jesus Christ. And grow into mature Christians who are willing to live out their faith and serve the Lord in a practical manner. Although he thought it was a different James who wrote this letter. Calvin stressed in his commentary. The importance of this letter for every Christian. He says that just as he opens his commentary on this. He says this epistle is full of instruction on various subjects. The benefit of which extends to every part of the Christian life. There are here he says remarkable passages on patience. Prayer to God. The excellency and fruit of heavenly truth. Humility holy duties, the restraining of the tongue, the cultivation of peace, the repressing of lusts, and the contempt of the world. We would do well, says Calvin, 
to take heed to them and employ them in our lives. And so in our introductory questions to studying the letter of James, we've asked who. Who wrote the letter of James? We've concluded that it was the Lord's brother. We've asked why. Why did James write this letter? It was in order to encourage Christians to go on to spiritual maturity. But lastly, I'd like us to ask what? What does James want to teach us? What does James want to teach us? Well, apart from dealing with spiritual immaturity, James wants to address the division which is often made between information and application. When I was training to be a minister in the Free Church College, ETS as it is now, uh, it was always stressed to us that we have to strike the balance between information and application. Between drawing out from what the passage says all the things that will help increase our knowledge and our spiritual growth, but also trying to balance it with how does this passage affect our day-to-day life and whether it affects the believer or the unbeliever. And I always, we were always taught to ask the question, well, what is the outworking of this passage going to look like? How is the Bible relevant to the listener in their present situation, whatever that situation may be? And as you can appreciate, it's hard to balance information and application. But for James, it seems so simple. Because the letter, it's full of memorable illustrations. Such as the rudder of the ship, the tongue that's set on fire, the bit in the horse's mouth, Elijah, the man who's so like us. But James's letter, it's also full of memorable phrases. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Faith without works is dead. We all remember these statements. They've all stuck in our mind. And from all these memorable statements, we can see why James is one of the most quoted books of the New Testament. In fact, it's because of these gems of wisdom, you could say, that the letter of James it has been likened to a, a New Testament equivalent of the book of Proverbs. But not everyone was a fan of the letter of James. The reformer Martin Luther regarded the letter of James as an epistle of straw. He considered it to be worthless and that it should be ripped out of the Bible because it's of no benefit to the Christian. Of course, Martin Luther's view was a total contradiction to his contemporary, John Calvin. But the reason Luther was very wary of the letter of James was because James doesn't mention the cross, doesn't mention the death of Jesus, and he doesn't use any theological terms that would indicate its usefulness to the church. But in Luther's mind, this epistle of straw, it was the straw which broke the camel's back, that the straw was to do with what James wrote about the balance between faith and works. He had a massive issue with what James said about faith and works. Because James writes in chapter 2, he writes in chapter 2, if faith does not have works, it's dead. 
But one, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And unfortunately, Luther had misunderstood what James was teaching. Because as you know, Luther, he had been embroiled in a battle with the Roman Catholic Church over the issue of faith and works. Where Luther, he had stressed that we are righteous in God's sight by our faith alone in Christ alone. And that our salvation is not based upon what we do, but upon what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's not about our works, it's about the work of Christ on the cross. But Luther's dismissal of this letter proves that even the best of men are only men at best. Because James wasn't teaching works instead of faith, as the Catholics do and other religions do. James was stressing works as a result of faith. He was emphasising that works are an outworking of our faith. And so Martin Luther may have questioned, questioned James's theology, but James's desire wasn't to produce a systematic theology like the Apostle Paul. His desire was to produce a handbook on practical theology. And although James didn't at all discredit the importance of systematic theology and knowing all the doctrines of the Bible, he certainly didn't want it to overshadow practical theology and the need to live out our faith in a fallen world. Because in James's mind, he believed that it's good to have faith and it's good to enjoy all the doctrines of grace. But what use is that faith to those around you? If all it is, is knowledge. Because the problem which can arise from gaining knowledge of the Bible is that we do nothing with it. And James writes his letter with a concern that Christians can become content in their salvation. We can fill our minds with knowledge, resting upon the sovereignty of God. And the result is lazy Christianity. A faith that doesn't have works it's not a sign of spiritual obesity. It's actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. Because we're sitting back and doing nothing with our faith. And so James says that we don't need a faith without works. No, we need a faith that works. We need a faith that works. And James puts it so bluntly to us that when he says that Christians who do nothing with their faith, he says they're dead Christians. Not dead spiritually, but they're dead in their activity for Christ. Christians who just live their lives and have no real change and make no real impact upon their home or their workplace or their community, James says, you're a dead Christian. And it's blunt, but sometimes that's what we need to hear. Because it's not all about information. It's also about the application. It's about applying the teaching of Jesus to our lives and living out the gospel. Of course, it's good for us to believe the gospel. It's good for us to know the gospel. It's good for us to be able to understand the gospel and all the, the benefits which the gospel provides for us. It's good for us to know about atonement and reconciliation and redemption and propitiation and adoption and justification and sanctification and glorification. It's good to know all these things and what they mean and how the Lord 
has worked in our life, how the Lord is working in our life, and how the Lord will work in our life in the future. But what concerns James is what about every day as we live out our faith in this world? What makes us different from the world? Because we have been called out of darkness into the marvellous light of the gospel. We've been called to be holy men and women of God. We've been chosen to serve the Lord. But how do we do that? And how does that look? What characteristics am I to possess as a Christian? What does Christianity actually look like? Not what I think it looks like. Not what other people tell me it looks like. But what does genuine biblical Christianity look like? And it's for that reason we're beginning our study of James. So that we all ensure, myself included, this sermon was as hard to prepare as it was to preach. But it's all so that we ensure that we do not have a faith without works, but a faith that works. And so in a word, we're introducing James. Who was James? James was the brother of Jesus. Why did James write his letter? In order to address spiritual immaturity. And what? What does James want to teach us? That we need to ensure that we do not have a faith without works, but a faith that works. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we give thanks to thee that thou art the God who has revealed thyself to us in his word. We thank thee, O Lord, that thou art the revelation made in and through thy son, Jesus. But we bless thee, O Lord, that thou art the God who has also given to us a revelation of how we ought to live and how we ought to emulate Christ the Christ who loved us and the Christ who gave himself for us. Help us then, we pray thee, or to be stewards of thy word, to pray as we were singing with the psalmist, show me thy ways, O Lord, thy paths, O teach thou me, and do thou lead me in thy truth, therein my teacher be, that we would see thy word as our teacher, as the schoolmaster, to lead us evermore to Christ. Help us, we pray, to or be humble in thy presence. Help us to have a teachable spirit. And help us, Lord, to learn. To learn to be more like Jesus. For he is the one who has promised that he who hath begun a good work in you will bring it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Bless us, Lord, we pray. Bless us in our being together. Bind us, Lord, together with cords that cannot be broken. Go before us and do us good for Jesus' sake. We shall conclude by singing in Psalm 119. <clears throat> Psalm 119. Singing from the beginning, page 399. From the beginning down to the verse marked 6. Psalm 119 from the beginning. Blessed are they that undefiled and straight are in the way who in the Lord's most holy law do walk and do not stray. 
Blessed are they who to observe his statutes are inclined, and who do seek the living God with their whole heart and mind. Down to the verse marked 6 of Psalm 119, to God's praise. of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.